Thanks, Brenda. I reminded her this morning that the first time we actually met, we were in a sex class together, and she said, what? <laughs> actually, it was a sex Bible study, and uh, <laughs> there is such a thing, you know, and, and we, uh, I had just come into the vineyard, and I was wondering, who will be my friend? Uh, because when you, we'd been in a church family for 13 or some years, and then God uh, dropped us into the vineyard. And I thought, I just was so wondering, because I really value relationship and friendships, and, and I was lost. And she, I saw her in class, and we, we are in Bible study. We met afterwards, and we sat in the car and talked about, how come nobody has Bible study about this? Like, this is so cool. Like, somebody actually would really talk about sex you know, with her friend, that's awesome. And we just connected and we've been kindred spirits ever since. <laughs> and Sherry, wow, I, I, have, I, I have seen you throughout the years. What a, I mean, just so love you. It, it, we've compared a little bit in the past our stories and there's lots of similarities, lots of different things, but it's just so good that she's our sister and in this family in the vineyard. Uh, we had a chance a few years ago to really get to know Sherry and Mike because uh, she was in a small group with my husband Brian and uh, through the Cecil process in Green Lake and we spent many of, uh, weeks at Green Lake together and it was just a joy. So I am so excited to talk to, to all of you beautiful, beautiful women about um, part of my journey. It was about four years ago, in the early spring, when I was in a really unique and disturbing situation. Our church uh, is located in Detroit Lakes, and now we have a second campus in Park Rapids, and our communities are in a rural area surrounded by beautiful lakes. In fact, um, when I go to work every day, I drive by um, a lake called Fox Lake, and it has beautiful water that's almost like turquoise, like the, the Caribbean. And just down the road, when I take my four-wheeler to dump my um, yard waste, is another uh, beautiful lake. And it, they just surround our, uh, both of our communities, but um, it is, I think, within 10 miles of Detroit lakes, there's uh, about 400 lakes. So there's as much water as there is land. And if you ride over our area in an airplane, they say that you just you see more water than you do, um, you do land. So Detroit Lakes and Park Rapids are actually very small communities that in the summertime double because so many people come from all over to enjoy the lakes. And um, we had a church, our, we have a church, it was growing and thriving four years ago in such a way that um, we were really in a pinch. Um, our campus uh, was really having unrealistic Sunday morning attendance, and what that looked like was three overcrowded services, not enough kids space, not enough bathrooms for, for everyone, and when everyone flushed, kind of like here, we had issues. A bad Sunday for a pastor is a Sunday when the septic tank backs up, fills the whole church with this nasty smell, and you have 130 kids who all need to go potty. It's a bad Sunday that day. But that wasn't really the worst of our problems. We were in the middle of a giving campaign called um, Imagine Immeasurably More. And 
we were making some really big decisions about whether we could stay in our building or not. And then the worst thing was we had a senior pastor who was completely leading on empty. And that was my husband. And I was really concerned because when he told me how bad it really was, uh, it very much alarmed me. He was having weird symptoms, dis um, disabling headaches. Uh, he was isolating more and more. He was uh, just really withdrawing. And, but the physical things were really alarming me. And so when he told me how bad it was, I set some things in motion. And um, we began to, uh, he had doctor's appointments. He had lots and lots of lab tests, which were uh, really freaked me out because they were, you know, checking everything from could be a brain tumor to um, with what his symptoms were to uh, heart problems. And so we, we made phone calls to our area and our regional pastors. We um, made sure that he could take a six-month sabbatical, so he had six months off. And then we arranged two um, pretty big road trips. One was to Idaho where we attended a 10-day uh, Sabbath retreat for senior pastors uh, provided by the vineyard, and I'm so thankful for a church family who takes care of their pastors. I'm so thankful. They paid for our entire trip, and, and we went out there, and our second trip was to Champaign, Illinois, where um, we were gonna undergo some psychological testing and, and then meet with some coaches about the results. So I was ready to support Brian in any way I could. I just would do whatever it took but what I didn't realize was how God was going to use all of this, all of these things, to rescue both of us, to rescue our church, and to invite me into a transformational journey and into conversations with Jesus that would do deep healing within my heart and my life. See, I thought I was fine. And life was busy and good. We uh, you know, had a thriving growing church. Sure, I had stress. I mean, when you're, when you're in a, a, a growing church, there's just lots of demands and expectations. I was overseeing ministries. I was overseeing staff, preaching on a regular basis, trying to sustain healthy friendships and, our, and parent our three young adults. Our youngest was uh, graduating from high school that year. She was six years behind our two boys, and later today I'm going to show you a picture of our family. But she was uh, graduating from high school and really trying to decide what to do in the future. But I was okay from my perspective. So we drove 20 hours to go to the Sabbath retreat in Idaho, and when we got there, we were really, really exhausted, and they gave us a journal, and we went to bed that night, and I woke up the next morning, and I wrote this in my journal. I slept well, and the beds were comfy. I had several dreams, but one has left me with a specific impression that is in the form of just two words, somehow disconnected. I hope to pursue what that means. So in the nine days following, I saw a glimpse of what that meant, and I got a deep, deep drink of the contemplative lifestyle. And later that morning, I opened up our, our curtain in our uh, bedroom to look out at the view, and what I saw was this magnificent rock right outside our bedroom window, and it's, you know, in Minnesota terms, it was a mountain, okay? <laughs> 
In Idaho, it was probably just a rock. <laughs> but I heard Jesus whisper into my spirit, come up here. I want to show you a different view. And I thought, oh, I don't know how the heck you get up there. Because it was huge, first of all. I didn't know it was possible to even physically get up there, but I knew that I knew that I knew Jesus was talking about more than the landscape surrounding us. That he was going to show me something that was going to be pretty deep, pretty beautiful, pretty awe-inspiring. It was an invitation to see what Jesus saw, to see more, to go to places that had previously been unseen in my life. I had no clue how challenging that journey was going to be. But in my heart, I opened up to it and I said, yes, Jesus, I'll go, I'll come. And I decided that wherever he would lead me, whatever he might show me, I would, I would go. I would go wherever he decided how he would love me. And this plea, this come away with me, which is what I entitled this, uh, these messages this morning, it's a passionate invitation. Jesus is inviting us on a journey of love with him. He's the lover of our soul. The lover calls. And he's calling you. Chapter 2 in the Song of Solomon, I was so excited when I saw the brochure for this, this weekend. And uh, just the beauty of the green grass, although we didn't have that the day we arrived. <laughs> but there's so much beautiful language in the Song of Songs. And uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 13 says this, The fig tree forms the early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside. Show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. And the beloved responds, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. My hope today for all you beautiful women, I stand up here and my, I think, oh, Jesus has such great adventures for you more than what you've experienced so far. You know, I've been a Christian for years, and in the last four years, I cannot believe what's happened in my life. And so my hope for you is that you leave today, and that you will go with this desire to respond to the call of Jesus, that you'll long, that your soul, that there will be a spark that just comes alive in you to say, I will go with Jesus no matter where he takes me. My hope is that you 
long for more when you're with him. That you're willing to have him show you whatever he wants to show you. That the view from his perspective is something you'll embrace. That's my hope for you today. That you will experience more. More laughter. More adventure. More love. In the next section this morning, after we take a break, I'm going to talk more about my journey with Jesus and the places that he had me go and linger along the way of that journey. And I'm, uh, I'll tell you some of the outcomes of that. But first, I want to tell you where I came from. I was born to uh, some older parents. My mom was 43. My dad was 50 when I was born. So they could have been my grandparents. And my mom, um, she went to the doctor because she thought she was in menopause, okay? And she found out, surprise, you're pregnant. And so it was actually very celebrated. My parents had thought about adopting another child. My oldest sister was, at the time, she was 12. My brother was, uh, my older sister, LeMay, was 12. My brother was um, 10 and his name's Milo, and then my sister, Eileen, was nine when I arrived in February, and I was born exactly on George Washington's birthday, and so all the flags were flying in my hometown that day, and my dad told everyone it was because I'd been born. <laughs> and for my name, they thought about naming me um, Martha. Is there any Marthas in the room? It might have been appropriate. <laughs> I'll tell you why later. But I'm so glad they didn't name me Martha. But they didn't know what to name me. So um, in those days, you could leave the hospital without naming a baby. So they just called me the baby <laughs> for weeks. And the baby's crying. It needs something. So I was it, or the baby. Eventually, they figured out a name. But my brother had really wanted a boy, a brother. So he was pretty disappointed, and my, my dad decided that he should probably ride along to the hospital to pick Mom and I up, and so he did. And, and the minute they uh, put me in his arms <clears throat> to carry me, he stuck his finger in the blankets, and apparently I grabbed onto his finger, and I also grabbed onto a very special place in his heart. He was okay with having a sister because I grabbed his finger. didn't take much. <laughs> and so, uh, for years, I really didn't like the fact that I was a girl, for one thing, because I'd heard the story of how he wanted a boy, and I thought he was pretty great. And um, I didn't really like my name, because it was so different. I thought that Heidi or Kathy would just be a lot better than Janice, because no one had that name. It wasn't normal. But there um, were other things that weren't normal. My parents were old. My mom's hair was always, always gray. And she talked in a really raspy voice because they'd nicked her vocal cords when she was um, in surgery. She had a thyroid surgery. So she talked kind of funny. And then all my siblings, by the time that I was old enough to play and actually have some fun with them, they were teenagers. And they didn't, you know, they had better things to do and play than play with me. So we lived on a small grain and dairy farm. And, you know, you might picture, oh, the beautiful countryside and a nice big white porch. No. <laughs> it was a little tiny white house and a little uh, old barn, um, but on land that had been developed uh, when my mom and dad moved there. It was actually undeveloped land, and they homesteaded the place. Um, 
And so it was small, but we loved it. We loved our farm. And my mom, um, when my mom and dad married, he was actually 33 years old. And the, and the farming community that he was from was so excited that he was finally getting married. And, and he was full Norwegian, 100%. And is there any Norwegians in the crowd? <laughs> Ufta. There's lots of you. <laughs> and he was the oldest son of immigrants from Norway who homesteaded in an area called Moose Lake. And they were actually some of the founding people of the little Lutheran church that they built on the banks of Moose River. Very remote. You probably don't know where it is. Uh, it's near Grigla. So, nope, you don't know where it is. <laughs> Norwegian was spoken every day in my dad's home growing up. And they worked very, very hard to just kind of carve out a life uh, on the land. My childhood, my childhood was filled with outdoor adventure. Um, my playground was the garden, the um, raspberry patch, the willow trees in our yard, the, the barn roof. I would slide down the barn roof and jump into the haystacks and wear out my jeans. My mom was always upset about that because I couldn't keep the butt in my jeans from sliding down the barn roof. But when we stopped raising chickens, we cleaned out the chicken coop, and they let me use that for a little playhouse. And so I had a little schoolhouse and a little church. Yes, I played school and church. It's amazing uh, because I, as a little girl, dreamed of standing in front of people. <laughs> Here I am. But. My companions were barn cats and kittens and my dog Daisy and her dozen puppies every spring. She'd have really literally a dozen or 13 puppies. And so I'd load them into my wagon and I'd drag them around the yard. And I would get into the uh, junk Studebaker pickup that was parked by the side of our garage and I would pretend that I could drive the pickup. It smelled so cool, uh, old and musty. And I, I, I would... Um, Collect worms. I don't know why I don't like worms now, but I used to collect them. And do you know that worms have babies? I mean, <laughs> I was surprised by this. Uh, and so lots of worms in cans. <laughs> I know, I, yeah. Other things have babies too, but I was shocked about worms. <clears throat> One of my favorite things to do was to take lunch out to the field. Now, lunch on a farm is not at noon. It's at 10 in the morning, and it's at 4 in the afternoon, or, you know, somewhere like 3 or 4. And we'd pack a lunch and go out to the field, and I would eat, sugar, I would eat cookies or sugar cubes. My dad used to teach me how to dunk the cookie into the coffee or um, suck on the, su the sugar cube while you drank the black coffee. And I knew the smell of puppy breath. Oh, it's so great. You guys, have you smelled that? It's, my husband thinks, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm smelling his breath. So great. Wheat chaff that's, that's you know, flying in the air, the smell of that, and, and the barley piling up into the grain bin. I, I knew the smell of oil on the dirt the smell of the oil on the dirt floor of the garage or the, the, the fresh seats on my bed after they'd been hung out on the line. And when you hang out jeans in the winter, you know what happens? It's the coolest thing. You can actually, like, stand them up because <laughs> they're, you know, stiff. They don't smell so good, but they're stiff. And then I, the woods behind our house, uh, just the little woods, but the, the musty smell of rotting leaves, 
and the, the, the musty smell of that old outhouse out there with the Sears catalog in it. Well, maybe it wasn't musty. It was more indescribable, <laughs> the smell of that. And my, my siblings used to like hide in the bushes while I'd have to go out to the outhouse, and they thought that was fun. It freaked me out, and I hated it. And when, when we actually you know, got a bathroom, I was pretty happy. Um, I, I remember the smell of, of milk um, in the creamer on our porch, the, the cream separator. It smelled like milk and rubber hose, and I remember the sound of clinking. <laughs> I know. It's funny how smell comes back to you. Uh, and I remember the clinking of the milk cans. You know, we didn't have a bulk tank. We were poor farmers, and so we had mil uh, milk cans that my dad would haul to the creamery, and he'd set them on this conveyor belt that would roll them into the, the creamery. And, and it would go in this little door, and then they'd come out empty this other door. It was the coolest thing. And so I remember, um, you know, just life was just so good. And every Sunday, um, it was about church, and it was about rest, and it was about family, and it was about playing. Uh, my aunts and uncles and cousins would come over after church. They'd bring food, and there was, it was always somebody's birthday, and every aunt would bring a cake. I mean, this is in the 1960s, and people didn't have a lot of money, but they would bake a cake for your birthday. And I remember birthdays where there were like seven cakes, you know, laid out on the table, and I was so happy, because I love cake. But mom and dad would get all of the adults and, and kids playing together. Now, I was the youngest, because I was the tag-along surprise. But we played um, board games or horseshoes or ball out in the yard. We'd go on picnics and we'd go blueberry picking. My parents believed that Sunday was a day of rest and it was a day of fun and it was a day for laughter and stories and my dad had a lot of them. I was the sparkle in my dad's eye. Um, he called me his dolly or his croca, little croca. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was special. Well, my uncle, who's now 96, his brother just told me a couple years ago that it's, it's Norwegian for little crow. I'm like, what? I hate crows. They're ugly, and they screech, and they sit up on the trees like demonic little things. I was like, oh, so much for special. So dad, he, he would play lots of checkers with me and he would take me fishing. He was actually a farmer who would leave the farm and we, he'd go to his cousin's cabin and he'd take me along and we'd get in a boat. I loved being on a boat with him. And then he'd let me help pick rocks and clean calf pens and stack the hay and burn the fields. Oh, that was fun. Gunny sacks soaked in water and we'd just put out the fire. I love fire to this day. My husband thinks I'm a pyro. But... <laughs> You know, when dad would get angry or upset, which is very, very common with any man that works with machinery or cows, okay? When he would get mad, my older siblings had figured it out that they could just send me in to the lion's den because he wasn't going to eat me. So I discovered that I had a knack that was I could calm him down. I could make him happy. And so... I began to believe that my job in life was to make people happy. And I started to think 
that my desires and my emotions were really below anyone else's. Because over time, I took responsibility for making people happy. And this misplaced responsibility, it was self-proclaimed. I thought I was good at it. And it began to grow into deep patterns in my life. Music was also valued in our home. And um, we had one of those old pump organs that had all the cool knobs and the little, you know, the pedals. Because my mom played at church, and so she would practice at home. And then my brother played guitar, so often when family and friends would come over, they would, uh, we'd gather around and we'd sing and we would play. It was a common event. But there was no dancing and no TV. Now, in the 60s, the TVs did not look like that. They were, you know, big honking things. But it was against my mom's religion to have a TV. And that was another thing that was just not normal in my life. Everyone had a TV. I mean, it was the days of gun smoke and bonanza. And I dreamed of cowboys and horses. <laughs> now, this cowboy was on Gunsmoke. And if you know who this actor is, don't say it out loud because I, I have a prize for you and I want you to stand up if you know who this cowboy is as an actor or you think you know. Stand up if you think you know. All right, good. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? <laughs> okay. So, how are we going to do this? I have a really cool prize. Where is it? Here it is. For you. Um, you know what? I'm going to open it up because you want to see this. Because you just might get, you know, like pretty. Whoa! There's like lots of stuff in here. Okay, so. <sighs> it's pink! And it's got little bullets. I asked Brenda if I could bring a gun, and <laughs> she looked funny. Okay, so this is your prize. I have a gun for you. So, tell me who this actor is, Roxy. No. Yes. Can you believe it? Okay, keep standing. No, keep standing. If you knew that it was Burt Reynolds, keep standing. If you knew it was Burt Reynolds. Have you seen him lately? He doesn't look like that. Okay, so if you know the character he played in Gunsmoke, keep standing. The name of the character he played. Oh, shoot. Okay, how are we going to do this? Okay, stand back up. Oh. What's his name? You thought you knew his name. Okay, what, what was the character he played? Yes. Very good. You get the prize. Come on up for your pink gun. Are you a grandma? Well, someday. Oh, perfect. You can use the gun. Strap it on and have fun. So this was Burt Reynolds. He played Quint. He was a, um, yeah, he was the blacksmith. And he was only on the show for a couple of years. And um, yeah, 
from 1962 to 1964. Most of you don't even know who he is. I had a young gal help me with my PowerPoint, and I said, you know who this is? She's like, I have no clue. <laughs> have you ever watched Gunsmoke? No, I don't know what it is. Sounds <laughs> great. So we had no TV, there was no playing cards, there was no wearing makeup, there was no wearing pants, you always had to wear a skirt. If you were a girl, you couldn't cut your hair, and you could not have a Christmas tree. I know. This was part of mom's heritage that was passed on from her mother. And if anyone from this group of folks came to visit us, my mom would run for the house from the barn. She'd get out of her chore clothes, put on a dress, and if it was Christmas time, because my dad did insist on a Christmas tree, she'd shove the Christmas tree in the bedroom with a sigh of relief, hoping that they never would ask for a nap. But all of these things confused me, and I, I, I saw my parents read the Bible. I saw them giving food and shelter and work to all kinds of people. I still hear stories about my parents that helped people because they loved God and they loved their neighbors. Mom became a social worker, and she would visit um, people throughout the county, and my dad served on the school board, and he drilled into us kids the value of education. Somewhere between my seventh and eighth birthday, I was um, sleeping with my sister. She, let me, she would let me sleep with her off and on, which was a big treat. And I would always say the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I went, that night freaked me out. What will happen if I die? So I asked my sister. And she told me what Jesus had done for me. She told me how I could ask him to be my Lord and Savior and that I didn't have to live in fear. And I'm so grateful. She then encouraged me to pray and ask him to be my Lord. And I did that that night. And I'm so grateful for my sister who's here today. She told me not to look at her, but I had to. <laughs> She told me about the value of Jesus and something changed in me and it was the Holy Spirit. He came to live inside of me and it became, he became my great comforter and my great help and it was amazing timing because my carefree, wonderful life on the farm was about to intersect with a devastating crash. In June of 1969, did I skip my dad's picture? Did you see that? Yes, no? Oh. So, where's the picture of my dad, Asa? You got it? <laughs> okay, he let me do stuff like this. He was a tough, hardworking farmer, but I could put curlers in, her hair, in his hair. So, in 1969, uh, my sister Eileen had just graduated from um, high school, and it was my, my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, and they decided to go to, on a trip to the cities, and they said that I could go along. We were really excited because it was a big deal to go to the cities. And we left late um, because just getting off the farm and getting the chores done, uh, we got out late, and we were trying to find my dad's cousin's cabin in the dark, and it was difficult. And I remember... 
uh, laying on my dad's shoulder. I was sleepy and just relaxed. And we were going uh, around curves and, and over hills. And I could feel that in the car. It was a big, big car, you know, in the 1960s. Everything was a honking thing of steel. So we were driving, and I was relaxed. And suddenly I, I felt Dad tense and exclaim, Ah! And I woke up, and bright lights were heading straight for us, and a drunk driver hit us head on. Now, I was eight. I climbed out of the car, and I climbed through the ditch and up to the road. And I stopped the first oncoming car I could, and when Mom joined me on the road, when she found me, I began screaming at her to get me a new dad, just like him. And I said it over and over, get me a new dad, just like him. And I was screaming at her hysterically. No one had told me. I just knew he was dead. The ambulance drove us to the nearest hospital to be admitted, and it was, there was such a dark and horrible feeling that just dropped into my gut. And finally, when the doctor told us that he was dead, um, that horrible, empty, lonely sadness began to create a home in my soul. And on the outside of me, there was bangs and bruises. I had shattered glass all over my head. I had a deep cut by my nose. My mom had broken ribs, and crying for her was very, very painful. So she didn't cry for months. And I followed her example, because I thought it was being a big girl not to cry. And I stuffed everything inside. Our small community was shocked, and they were concerned. And with so many people watching, I just decided that it was best to be okay. Our family followed mom's example of forgiveness. It was a young man who'd hit us. He was leaving a party. He was drunk, and of course he was speeding. And he was coming around a curve when he hit us head on. And it was interesting that when I came into the vineyard, one of the first ministry times that Jesus did in me was he spoke to me about my dad and how he saved my life by turning the car at the right moment. But my mom chose to forgive this young man that changed our life forever. We never saw any contempt, no bitterness in word or deed. She was wise. And it was a very life-giving decision, not only for her, but our entire family. The cows were shipped off. My sister went off to college. I went to third grade, and my mom went to work. The following summer, I stayed at my aunt and uncle's because my mom took some college classes at Bemidji State University where she could get um, prepared for a job that she was going to take in a new community. So our farm was rented out, and we moved. My loss now included the barn, the garden, the playhouse. We had to leave behind the dog, the cat. The family gatherings on the farm became just distant memories. And anything that was of value to me was gone. My brother um, was in the Marines, and I went to fourth grade in a new school. Mom was working at the school library in our new, our new community. We moved off the farm into a town uh, called Roseau. It's right on the Canadian border. And next door, there was a large family, 10 kids, that became really a lifeline for us of laughter and uh, community and friendship. 
And my brother decided to return from the Marine Corps and get married, and he decided to go on the farm and work the farm and live there. Both my sisters got married, and it seemed to me that within a year and a half, my, my whole family disappeared. They vanished. And they would come to visit us, but it wasn't home for them in our new place. And we never talked about Dad. We ignored the gaping hole that he had left. We willish, willingly kind of pushed our pain and loneliness deep inside, and we thought that was right to do. I heard adults say things like, don't cry, because it doesn't change a thing. Or, it'll be okay. And I wondered when that would ever happen. But messy emotions were not acceptable. They were not okay. And it seemed like there was no permission to talk about my anger or my deep sadness or disappointment. I was reminded that there were so many others that were far worse than me and that what I, f I felt was just really not all that valuable or important. My honest feelings produced this inner sense of shame within me because I shouldn't be so sad or lonely. And I didn't want to ever admit it because I didn't want to make anyone else sad. I wanted to make people happy. And a false self began to grow within me because I was learning to become someone that others wanted me to be, and that was okay, to be okay. And most of the time, I cherished this illusion. I convinced myself and other people that I really was okay. And I really got good at ignoring what was really true inside of me. Our house was too quiet, too lonely, and it seemed so weird, so I got, I just, I got involved piano lessons and Girl Scouts and FHA and basketball and track and competitions and 4-H, and I had horses and rabbits and calves, and I juggled them between my uncles and brothers and cousins' farms. I, I loved learning new things. I loved being around people. In fact, I was almost addicted to being around people because I took care of the loneliness in me. I loved learning and, and, and just being busy. I formed a brilliant plan of being busy. So as I got into my teen years, I noticed money was tight, and I worked summer jobs. I pitched in to buy school clothes, and I wanted to buy a horse, and so I worked to do that. My brother encouraged my love for horses. He um, was living on the farm with his young family, and he invited me to come and live with them in the summers, and have my horse on the farm. And he was pretty much my hero. He was fun, and he was uh, innovative, and he was the rescuer of our family's farm, the thing we'd loved so much, and my parents had worked so hard to build. And so by now, I really had no tangible memories of my dad, and I loved him with all the passion a little kid's sister could have for a big brother. In fact, he took me up the aisle on my wedding day. And I met Brian, the man I was going to marry, actually when I was 15. I met him at a dance at a little community. Uh, um, my mom had relented and said, okay, you can go to dances. I think by the third kid, she decided it was just too hard to keep up all the rules. <laughs> and so she let me go to the dance, and I was standing with a bunch of my grade school friends, actually, and I saw Brian walk in, and I, I gasped, look at the guy with the cute nose. <laughs> and they all noticed... But when he came up to ask a bunch of us if any of us would dance, I didn't even hesitate. I grabbed his arm, and we were out on the dance floor. And so um, I met him at 15. 
Um, but by this time, my mom and I had stopped going to church. God was always on my mind for sure. But I had no time, you know, I, I was very, um, I just didn't want to go to church because my mom cried every time we went. And it, made, it rattled me. And um, I, I didn't have any time for people who drank or partied. And when you're in high school, that's a bit of a challenge. I, I had no tolerance for alcohol. It had taken the, the person in my life that was most important to me. And so I didn't care if I got harassed about it. I, I just didn't want to deal with it as far as um, alcohol in my life. And when I met Brian that night, he was stone drunk. Great. He's so good looking, but he has a problem. So, um, you know, life went on. We dated on and off, but my mom... Um, she, we were really close, and she told me that I was a gift from God because I gave her a reason to live, getting through the death of my dad. She was wise, she was practical, her faith was really deep, and I'm so thankful for all the things she taught me. So my cousin's farm was closer than my brother's, and so he invited me into their family for the last couple summers of my um, high school. And, um, and so I kept my horse there, and they loved me, they prayed for me, they still do to this day. And they took me to church, and I loved having that sense of family with my cousins. And then I graduated from high school, I sold my horse, I headed to college, um, was dating Brian off and on, mostly off because he went to Alaska <clears throat> a lot and would never answer my letters. Um, I'm not bitter about that at all, I just you know, <laughs> wanted to bring it up. <laughs> But by now, when I graduated from high school, he was getting serious, and um, he wanted to get married. And I'm like, absolutely not. I'm going to college. My dad wanted me to go to college. I'm going to college. Like it or not, here's your ring back. Thank you very much. But he said he was going to move to Alaska, and by the time I finished one year of college, I knew that if I said no to him, I'd miss out on one of the greatest adventures of my life. So we married in June of 1980. And in the late, of, uh, late November, we stuffed everything we owned into a Suburban and we said our goodbyes to our family. And a really weird, strange thing happened to me when I said goodbye to my brother. I cried, and I, I, I hugged him, I cried, and then I began to cry a lot. And it was so strange. When he walked out the door, I began to sob so violently that my mom and Brian were so concerned they thought maybe they should call a doctor because it was hours of me weeping and travailing. And I eventually stopped, but it was several hours later. And the road to Alaska was, was fun and adventurous. It, it was so exciting. Brian got a job in Anchorage, and I started Bible school. And it was a really sweet time. We were newlyweds, and I was happy. Super, super happy. And in late April, Brian answered the phone in our apartment, and it was my mom, and my world turned upside down again. And at the farm that day, my brother was welding a piece of equipment, and she called to tell me, to tell us, that he'd been killed in a freak, horrifying explosion. Milo was 30. He had a beautiful wife. a four-year-old son, and a two-year-old daughter. And Brian and I flew home from Alaska as fast as we could. 
but no one, including his wife or my mom, were able to see his body. And we were all stunned. We muddled through a funeral in the same school gym where my dad's funeral had been. And our loss ultimately included the farm, which was permanent this time. When sudden and tragic accidents happen in our lives, and some of you have experienced this, when someone's ripped away, it's hard to describe what happens because it's like time just stops. It comes to a screeching halt. And life keeps moving on, but you want to scream, no, stop. This is so wrong. <coughs> the stuff of life just fades into an irrelevant distance, and you have to face reality and make really hard decisions. And you're so exposed. Your humanity is so exposed because you know that at any second you could lose anyone you love. And maybe you felt what I'm describing. I wish I could hear all your stories. And I'm honored that you've listened to mine. It's been 33 years from this very week that my brother died, April 21st. And through the years, I've grieved, as most adult Western Christians do, with a hole in your heart and a hole in your soul. You just try to move on the best you can. And I had the gift of a loving husband who helped me realize that I was acting every spring in weird ways, and it probably was due to grief. But grieving's a part of living. It's a part of breathing. It's a part of being human. So we're going to take a break, but before we do, would you like to know the results of what I call my P-test? Psychological testing? I'll tell you. Here's what they said. All I saw was dots and wiggly lines, but they said that it appeared that I was secure and stable emotionally, but I gave little space and attention to my emotions. They told me that I, I, I didn't probably have a severe problem, but that it suggested that I was, um, I was probably somewhat disconnected. Hmm, those two words echoed in my heart and I began to weep. They said it was probably due to trauma from the accident of my dad as a child. And I was freaked out. I was not as authentic as I thought I was. What is this? Now my husband is a calm, if you know him, he's calm and quiet and very, very courageous. He doesn't get rattled easy. But for these psychologists, he said, what are you saying? Are you saying that she needs to be more emotional? <laughs> Can you tell me what this might look like? Does this mean she's going to start throwing lamps across the room? He was totally freaked out. The very thought of me that there was something false in me just shook me to the core, but a spark ignited in me that day that I needed to get to the bottom of this and I needed to view and see what God saw. And I knew that he wanted to open up the sacred places of finding my authentic self. 
See, Jesus has wonderful places for us to go, wide open spaces, and it's spring once again, and he's inviting all of you to a journey. Arise. Come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come away with me. We're going to take a break, and then we'll come back for the last session. I'll tell you about my journey and what Jesus has done specifically to heal me and, and how amazed he wants to heal you. So, But with no reserved physical or emotional energy, I was not respecting my limitations and being simply human. I didn't want to be human. I wanted to be superwoman. I wanted to be like God in the way that I didn't want to um, think about the fact that I needed to stop. Our brains and our bodies and our spirits and our emotion, our, our soul is wired for rest. And if we have no rhythm of, of work and play and rest in our lives, we're in danger. In fact, we're doing violence to ourselves. And I know that in the 21st century, we are going, going, going. And if we're not going, our brains are going. And we have our cell phones out and we're on Facebook and we are thinking and interacting and we are just on the move, right? And as women, we're thinking about all kinds of things. I mean, those guys have it nice, don't they? <laughs> they can just think about one thing at a time and there's no pop-ups going on all the time. So that's why they can rest while you're running around the house, doing the dishes, changing the diaper, you know, answering the phone, and uh, doing the laundry and vacuuming the floor all at the same time. Because we're busy, busy women. But the practice of Sabbath is a point of faith. It's faith in that I realize that I'm not in control of my world, that the world around me, the uh, the bigger world and the little world around me doesn't keep going because of what I do. So the, the practice of the Sabbath is about faith, but I had no idea what it even was, really, biblically, what it was. And I'm not going to go in. There, you know, you can look up. It, it's the fourth commandment. It's the longest commandment. All of them are short. Do not murder. Do not steal. But when it comes to the Sabbath, it goes on and on. So I wasn't, I didn't know how to stop. I had a day off, but on my day off, I did my, I paid the bills, I, I, I bought the groceries, I did the laundry, I cleaned the house, and I, I thought, you know, that was the way life was. It's very um, common to hear people say, I can't take a day of rest. There's too much to do. But we are not honoring God by not resting for a complete 24 hours. How many of you, how many of you could honestly say that you practice resting, playing, honoring God, reflecting, delighting in Him for 24 hours straight? These are my girls. I've taught them. Most of us don't. And we're exhausted. Are you exhausted? 
It's because God has made you to rest. And for me, this has been a huge learning curve. And I'm still learning what I can and I can't do on my Sabbath. But I am having so much fun. And I am getting so much rest. And I love it. And God has it for all of us. A Sabbath. The next stop was a place where I had to take a really hard, long look at my spirituality. And the view wasn't good. Jesus pointed out how emotionally unhealthy I really was. And I had to linger here a long time. And during this time, I heard Steve Nicholson say something that gave me great hope and great joy. He said this, I thought our church plant was the project, but I discovered that I was the project. And I thought, yay, I'm okay. I'm the project. It's okay. Thank you, Steve. Pass that on, Cindy. He was at a leadership uh, training, and I was so blessed by it because I was in the middle of this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I had read it five times five times. I had to make sure that I did the deep work of this, and so I made myself lead three small groups through it, and this is the 10 symptoms of unhealthy emotional spirituality, okay? Using God to run from God. This is about God activities. Being so busy doing the work of God that you're not being with God. Two, ignoring the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. Dying to the wrong things, number three. See, we're, we're to die to our sinful parts of us, but there's also good parts we kind of just let go away when we become a, a Christian, like our dreams, or our ability to just have fun and enjoy nature, and on and on. So we're to die to sin, but not all of the other things that are part of how, how God uni uniquely made us. Dying, uh, denying the past impact on the present. Dividing our lives into the secular and sacred compartments. What does that look like? Well, it looks like going to church and worshiping and tears streaming down our face because we love Jesus. And then we go home and we hate our husbands. Or disrespect them. Or we don't use our money the way God intends us to use our money. We divide and compartmentalize the secular from the sacred. Doing for God instead of being with God. We're spiritualizing away conflict. Slipping things under the rug. Keeping the peace at any cost. That's unhealthy. Jesus stirred it up, conflict. He stirred up conflict all the time. And he was cool through it all. Well, he got angry. That was a shock to me. You mean I can get angry and God won't fall off the throne? That was news. So covering up um, brokenness, weakness, and failure. You know, we're all deeply flawed. I love the Bible because, he, because God doesn't erase Noah's story of getting drunk or Moses 
of getting angry or Peter. How would you like to be Peter? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter had problems. Nine, living without limits. This is the no rest, no self-care, no play. And then 10, judging other people's spiritual journey. Now, I had all 10 symptoms. And five were blaring in my face, big red flags, like number two. You know, so much of my true self had been buried alive with my dad that I didn't, you know, I had a rule against sadness. I had a rule against anger. And I didn't even have words for my feelings. Okay, I had to ask a counselor to give me a list of feeling words because I had no vocabulary. Shocking. I really didn't. So I began to practice, took the list out. Oh, I'm frustrated. Oh, I'm, you know, ticked off at so-and-so, and here's why. I had to practice. So I want you to take, you know, look at this list of 10 and just jot down the ones that might be red flagged for you today that are unhealthy emotionally. That's your, uh, that's your work. Now Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Um, that no one can produce fruit without being connected to me. See, he's saying that if a woman remains in me and I in her, she will bear much fruit. But apart from me, she will do nothing, it says in John 15. In fact, it says that if we're not connected to Jesus, that we will wither away. So Jesus' picture of what this looks like, our relationship with him, is a beautiful, fruit-producing vineyard, garden. Lovely, peaceful. But we have foxes running around. And in every one of these symptoms, there's a fox or two or three behind the symptoms. And they are ruining this beautiful vineyard of our relationship with Jesus. So what are yours? What are the foxes running through the vineyard? You know, a fox is a beautiful animal. I love their face. They're, they're such a, they have such a cute face. But they raise a lot of havoc for animal owners. They kill chickens and they kill cats and small dogs and, and they dig holes in pastures and they, they just are a nuisance and they need to be caught, they need to be trapped. We have a good neighbor uh, who actually traps the, the fox in our neighborhood. And last summer, his name is Trapper Joe. And he's got a funky looking, he's just funky looking. And his car is funky looking, but, he, but we're happy because he traps the uh, fox and the gophers. But he caught a fox last summer on our property and he, he, when he found it in the snare, it was dead, and so he threw it in the back of his, his car, and as he drove back through our yard, the fox jumped up and started yipping at him and howling, and it freaked him out. It was a bad fox day, bad fox hunt. But a fox is not a cute pet. It is, it, it, it's, it's something that will harm the things you want to protect, the things that are most valuable to you. And I've given names to some of the foxes that I had to catch in my vineyard, the vineyard of my love relationship with Jesus. 
And I had to eliminate them. Now, I had to try eliminate them because fox can come back alive. And the names of the foxes in my vineyard were Avoid, Busy, his brother Busy, and his other brother Busy, Distraction, and Noisy. So we have to eliminate these foxes that are, that are ruining what's so good and fruitful and beautiful. And for you, this is a really great book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, to begin to discover who they are, the fox in your vineyard. The next uh, stop along my way was silence. Now remember, I said one of the fox's names was noisy. Noise, distraction, all was, uh, was you know, happening around me, and I spiritualized it pretty much away. Um, my coach, Charles Bellow, said, Janice, why are you avoiding time with God? I spent time with God, but why are you avoiding lengths of time with God? So I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I want you to think about that, and he gave me an assignment. He said, I want you to take a whole day off work, and I want you to think just about this one question. So um, I gave it about two hours, <laughs> and it was on a drive to Fargo, and I, was, I, I came up with, I know why. I'm just too busy, and I think Satan just keeps me so busy that he distracts me so that I don't spend time with Jesus. That is a good answer for Charles. And I knew it was not true. I knew, but it sounded good. And so I thought, I better do what he told me to do. And so I did. I took a day, and I sat, and I thought, and I pondered, and I prayed. And here's the deal. I did not want to spend a lot of time with God because I thought I would be bored and lonely. See, I had spent my life avoiding boredom and creating noise because my house was so lonely after I lost my family. And I was avoiding loneliness. That was the deeper truth. I'd spent snort, uh, uh, short snippets of time in conversation with Jesus, but not long periods of time. It scared me. And so I started with, um, it, along with Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, there's a little uh, book called Office, and I began to use that and practice quiet. See, the practice of quiet is stilling every inner and outer voice just to be with God. And three minutes was horrifying. I couldn't do it. Everything kept popping up in my mind, and I just, you know, we, I could hear the furnace running, and uh, Brian on his, uh, you know, he likes to listen to some weird music, what's it called? Uh, techno. On, you know, <laughs> I know. I, I just, there was this noise. And so I had to shut the noise off. I, had, I had, had many kinds of devotions over the years, but they never did what silence began to do in my life. And this is what Ruth Haley Barton says. 
One of the most important lessons I've learned over the last few years is how important it is to have time and space for being with what's real in my life, to celebrate the joys, grieve the losses, shed my tears, sit with the questions, feed my anger, feel my anger, contact issue, sorry, uh, attend to my loneliness, this being with what is is not the same thing as problem solving or fixing because not, not everything can be fixed or solved. Rather, it means allowing God to be with me in that place and waiting for him to do what is needed, waiting for him. The quiet turned into a place for me of stillness at the very core of my being, and it took time. It took some work. It became a secret place where the Spirit of God, where Jesus began to speak so clearly to me that the, you know, I'd heard his voice uh, you know, for years. That wasn't a problem. But, you know, I wasn't disconnected that way. But the interaction of questions and response and question and response began, began to be consistent and it began to reveal my heart and my soul. And Jesus began to speak and affirm and comfort me. On my 50th birthday, I was struggling a bit and I was practicing silence. And I said, I asked Jesus the question. He loves questions. And I said, Jesus, what are you doing today on my 50th birthday? Because I don't know what I want to do. And he said, I'm planting tulips. You're planting tulips? Yeah, I'm planting tulips. I've been planting tulips on your birthday every year you've been alive. Really? Yeah, I planted one tulip the day you turned one. And I planted two tulips the day you turned two. And today I'm planting 50 tulips for you. You are? And I saw him with dirt on his jeans and streaked across his cheek and he was smiling at me. And he said, if you do the math, honey, you're going to have a great tulip garden in heaven. What? Are you kidding me? I love tulips. I've moved so often, I've never been able to plant them and have them. But Jesus has been doing it in heaven for me on my birthday for 50 some years. Ah, oh, incredible. And then he helped me build a garden out of barn wood from the farm I grew up on. And the garden had weeping willow trees and and paths and a swing and Jesus would swing with me and then he said hon I want you to see your dad really yeah and there was a place in the garden that we'd built together in this time of silence. I, I, don't, I, I can't, I feel kind of crazy sometimes describing this to people because it's so deep and so personal. But Jesus has this for every one of you when you sit with him. And he took me to this place that looked just like that with a, you know, arbor thing and a bench underneath. The bench was built out of barnwood. It was familiar to me. 
And there we sat, Jesus and I. And then one day, my dad joined us. And I had for years not known what he looked like, what he felt like. And Jesus let me climb in his lap and feel him and hear his voice, my dad's. And we had to spend time together. And it was a beautiful place. And from the garden, he took me out to the fields. My dad loved flax fields. And there was a flax field as far as you could see. And Jesus said, you and your dad can go for a walk. Really? And then he took us to a lake. And it was a 1960s vintage wood boat with red seats. And the weekend that Brenda and I spent together in Cross Lake, I don't know if you've ever been to Cross Lake, Minnesota, but it's like vintage boat heaven. And we're sitting having lunch, and I went, ah, there's the boat. And she goes, what? Thanks. <laughs> That's the boat that Jesus and I ride around on with my dad. <laughs> And she's like, okay, Janice. <laughs> Tonight's going to be a late night. <laughs> but seriously, from there was my brother. I said, I don't want to see him. I'm mad at him. He was stupid to be welding on that thing. I don't want to see him. Jesus said, okay, that's fine. We'll sit on the blanket a little longer. We'd have picnics, and he didn't force me. One day I knew I was ready. Actually, what he did is he showed me Milo off in the distance, standing by a tree, and he said, he said to me, Janice, we'll go there when you're ready. And one day I was ready. And I went, and I'd had a talk with my brother, and I forgave him for being stupid. So stuff like this was happening, um, riding horse with Jesus, crying and healing and laughing. It was so incredible. See, Psalm 62 says, my soul waits in silence for God alone. From him is my salvation. Not just in eternity, but the salvation of my soul that is full of emotion and pain, and loneliness. That's where Jesus goes. And it's so beautiful. And then he told me one day to write a lament. I've never read the book. It's so depressing. Lamentations, have you ever read it? It's horrible. <laughs> he said, I want you to write your own. So I sat with my Bible, and I, I took the verses, and I just wrote them out, with my story. Wow. If any of you have had a deep loss, open that book and use the words and write your own story of lament. And then Jesus said, showed me the scripture in Mark 10 about where he asked the blind men. Now clearly Jesus could see the guy was blind. And yet he said, what do you want me to do for you? And so we were at a 
senior pastors of women retreat in Malibu, and um, Diane Lehman said, spend some time with that question, three hours of silence. We couldn't talk to one another. That was a tough day, wasn't it, Brenda? <laughs> we could wave, but we couldn't talk. And Jesus uh, met me here in this place of silence, and I realized I didn't know what I wanted because was it even important? All my life it was, what do the adults want? What does my husband want? What do my kids want? Does it matter what I want? What does my church want? What do the women in my church want? <laughs> Thank you for that prayer today, Brenda. But it's, I didn't know what I wanted, so I sat. And another really good practice in silence, what do you want? And my three minutes of silence began to grow and grow, and now I long to be with him in the beauty of what he shows me, laughing with him, asking him questions, having him ask me questions, and the endless possibilities that our conversation can include. It's a beautiful thing. My most current stop along my journey has been a pretty exciting one. And I'm pretty excited to show you this because I don't have grandkids. But um, God did some things that I get to show you some really fun pictures about. I call this last stop sacred gifts. This is about the things that God can give us uniquely for our souls that really are holy and blessed and they're just awe-inspiring. And I have three favorite books um, on, about sacred things, sacred pathways, sacred companions, uh, sacred rhythms. I find sacred just popping up everywhere. But the, along the path of your unique journey, God will give you the sacred gifts that are meaningful to you, that will touch your heart, that will speak life to you. But many, one of the first things was this book, Sacred Rhythms, because the, the rhythms and practices that you can do and begin to learn will lead you further down the, the path of, of transformation. See, any journey begins with this longing in us to go somewhere. And to get there, we have to be disciplined. We have to put some things in our life that will get us there. Uh, not GPS, <laughs> spiritual rhythms and practices. And it, takes some, um, it takes some decision to say, you know what, I am going to be with the great lover who can lead me to the place of great love. He's the only one that can do this in my life, that willpower won't do it, uh, good Bible study won't do this, uh, necessarily. It's the work of returning over and over to the great lover of our soul. And Thomas Merton reminds us that the root of Christian love is not about the will to love, but the faith to believe that we are deeply loved by him, that we're deeply loved by God. Ruth Haley Barton says in this book, Sacred Rhythms, it was not until after, it's not until after we've settled within our 
into our desires and named them in God's presence, that we're ready to be guided into the spiritual practices that will open us up to receive what our heart is longing for. The movement from desire to discipleship is important. So if you don't really know what you want Jesus to do for you, spiritual practices will be pretty dull and empty. So this book provides practical guidance into the key disciplines of the Christian faith that really connect to the most consistent and compelling um, places, desires of the, the human soul. It's a great tool. Then God gives us the gift of surprise. One of my favorite movies is Dan in Real Life. And if you've watched that at the very end, he says, prepare to be surprised. I love that movie. I watch it over and over. But over years of looking for a place in the country, God miraculously surprised us with the opportunity to buy a small ranch. Now, you know, Jesus redeems everything. This ranch is across a road from a lake. It's 23 beautiful rolling acres that are fenced in for our horses. This is actually my pasture that you're looking at, the back of my property. It's five miles from our church. And we're surprised by this every day that we get to live here. It's beautiful. I have a clothesline to hang my clothes on. I have a small oak woods with paths that lead to a garden. I have a swing in an oak tree. It was a beautiful spot for our daughter's wedding. I have a front porch, which I've always wanted, mounds of hydrangeas, climbing, uh, climbing ivy on brick ferns. I have a round pen for working my horses and even a large dinner bell that I can ding <laughs> to bring the cowboys in. <laughs> which, by the way, my husband started wearing cowboy boots in the last two years. Oh. But God beams with delight over us. He knows what kind of surprises will touch and speak to our hearts in the deepest possible ways. And there were so many surprises. I was riding in South Dakota with people I hardly know on an uh, experienced trail horse, and they gave it to me. Now, that's not the horse, <laughs> actually. The horse, it's back end, that one. <laughs> free. And I gave it to my son, actually, for his 29th birthday. Gift of surprises. The next thing I got was a border collie. My dog, growing up, had been a border collie, and Dan Paxton from Iowa gave us his border collie. The next thing was kittens. I got a kitten. That's my little willow. She's now had kittens, the white one, the white one. And now she's got beautiful points. I, I wanted a ragdoll kitten. Nobody can afford a ragdoll kitten. And you know what Jesus did? He put a ragdoll kitten in my friend's mama cat. And I got it for free. <laughs> and then she had babies. And then the last addition to our little uh, troop is <laughs> my new puppy. His name is Wiley Boone. And these are my grandkids. <laughs> Aren't they cute? I've only had Wiley for three weeks, and I thought, what amazing timing. But Jesus knows every detail of our hearts, and the kind of surprises that can touch us 
Only he can knows these are sacred gifts to be surprised by him. I'm gonna skip this next one, but the next surprise was the School of Spiritual Direction. I'm in that now. I get done in May. Uh, it, this is a, a beautiful thing, a desire that was growing in me to be trained to be a spiritual director, and I'm getting trained to do that, and I'm so, so excited about what that might mean as I walk on with Jesus in more healing and more healing. But let me give you a couple more details of my story before we close and do some ministry time. So I mentioned how I didn't really like my name and over the years I have learned that my, the meaning of my name is God is gracious. And it makes perfect sense to me. My parents must have heard God's whisper. You know, there's so much more adventure that I need to discover, but in just four years, I'm more courageous, I'm more calm, I am experiencing freedom from unrealistic expectations that I've placed on myself. I've, I've been freed from the desire to please others, be a people pleaser. I'm, I'm no longer having to prove myself. I'm, I'm more compassionate, I'm more loving, I'm less judgmental. And when I ask Jesus things about myself or my behaviors, he's gentle, but he's firm. And he answers my serious questions and he answers my goofy questions. And he makes me laugh at him. He makes me laugh at myself and he laughs at me. This way of life is so much better than just being okay. This is my family. And the last bit, this was taken at um, my daughter's wedding last summer. It's on our ranch. The last bit of my story is about Jesus' amazing and beautiful grace. One of the deepest effects of the loss in my life of my dad and my brother, the men that I loved, was that early in our marriage, I struggled with short episodes of panic because I was convinced that Brian would die in an accident, my husband. And Jesus helped me overcome this over the years as I trusted him and I said yes to him. But my fear then began to shift to my older, my sons. And as they grew into their teen years, that fear would rise up when they wouldn't come home at night or when they wouldn't call or communicate with me. But this past November, Brian and I were with our son Jordan. Um, he should have an arrow over his head. <laughs> Who happened to be 30 years old in November. And we were with him at a place in southern Minnesota where we were doing a saddle fitting for his, his horse. And his horse threw him off onto concrete and his head slammed onto concrete full force and then his 16-hand thoroughbred that weighs 1,300 pounds fell on top of him, scrambled up and fell on top of him again. And Jordan went into a seizure. And once it subsided, Brian was on his side, in between him and his horse, holding him in his arms, checking out how bad he was. And as the seizure stopped and he laid there for a while and Brian checked him out, I was at his feet. Both Brian and I and the woman who owned the farm <coughs> watched as Jordan's spirit left his body and he died in our arms. 
There's no words to describe the minutes that followed. And once again, time stopped. And I screamed, and Brian screamed, no! It just ripped out of us. And it's a sound that will be in my memory forever, but Jesus was there. And we couldn't see him. But Jordan started to breathe again. And I don't have the time or the courage to tell you how impossible this was. Because everything was leaking out the back of his head. And Brian, again, who's not dramatic and always calm, said, everything's coming out. And I knew my son was gone. But when he began to breathe, I didn't know what was happening. And they airlifted him to a hospital in Minneapolis. And Brian and I got in a car. We had to drive two and a half hours. It was horrible. Well, it wasn't horrible because we'd seen him breathe. And he actually talked to the paramedics. But we didn't know that when we, if we got to the hospital, if he'd be dead or alive. Brian and I just held each other's hands and we resolved, I resolved for sure, that no matter what the end result of this tragedy was, that I was not gonna let me lose my assurance of God's goodness and grace and that the devil wasn't gonna get any more from me in this. He'd take, you know, my dad was gone, my brother was gone, not my son. But even if it was my son, I'd serve Jesus. I'd praise him. It was a traumatic brain injury. And when, uh, when Jordan came to, we checked the back of the, his head, and there was no wound at all. There was a little check mark where it looked like the finger of God had just went, check, took care of that. <laughs> and that disappeared within hours. He woke up, he was strapped down into the hospital bed, and he has no rem remembrance of the accident at all, but in the next two weeks in the hospital, God's incredible people prayed and loved and gave. Brenda was there within hours, and our church, came around us, our church family in the vineyard, our region began to pray, and we saw a miracle. He was raised from the dead. It's a miracle he's alive, but it's more of a miracle that he's completely recovered and he has no lasting effects other than a bit of hearing loss. He's back to work. And in all of this, Jesus was healing me of trauma. He was beside me. He was speaking to my heart. And he was loving me. And Brian, in Psalm 111, he said, you've got to tell the ladies this. And so I added it to my notes. God's works are so great. It's not in the PowerPoint. God's works are so great. Worthy are worth a lifetime of study, endless enjoyment for all who delight in them. Splendor and beauty mark his craft. His miracles 
are his memorial, this God of grace, this God of love. And when I think of the wisdom and scope of his plan, I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father of all the great family of God, some of them already in heaven, some of them on earth, that out of his glorious, unlimited resources, he will give you the mighty inner strengthening of his Holy Spirit. I want to close. I believe that God wants to do some healing this morning before we have lunch. You know, we sing that song, Open Up My Eyes, Lord, Let Me See Your Glory. I saw the glory of God in the last few months in such a way that I believe in the resurrection power. He can, he can take all of the stuff in our life that's been bad, hurtful, full of pain, full of loss, and he will redeem it. Now, I don't know why my son got to live. Because some of you have lost your sons, your husbands, your parents. I don't know. But this I know. God's in charge. And I, I think that Christ wants to be more and more in our homes the home of our soul, the home of our heart. He wants to be living in us. He wants us trusting in him with everything that brings us fear. He wants our roots to go down deep into his love, into the marvelous soil of his love, so we can feel him and understand how we should as his kids, how wide, how deep, how high his love for every one of us is. And I pray that you experience this kind of love, that Jesus says, come away, come away with me. I've got lots of things to show you. Would you stand with me? Now, you, you, you've maybe lost someone very, very dear to you. I want you to come up right now. We want to pray for you this morning. Maybe it's been a tragedy. Maybe it was just sickness, illness. But you've lost someone very, very dear. And I think Jesus wants to touch that and say, I was there. I was in charge. I was in control. Maybe you've lost some of your health and you um, are grieving that. I want you to come. Maybe you've lost uh, romance in your marriage, a, a sense of friendship. There's been a loss there. I want you to come. Maybe you've lost your ability to have fun or hear from, hear from Jesus. Maybe you're just not hearing him anymore and you used to, you don't know what has gone wrong, but you've lost that. Maybe you've lost a dream. 
Maybe you've lost uh, your optimism or enthusiasm. Maybe you've lost yourself along the way of life. I think Jesus wants to touch that. I think he wants to do a work in you that's uniquely designed for you. He wants to lead you down a path where he'll say, stay here a while. Linger here, because I have things to say to you. I have things to do in you. And it's going to be good. It's going to be beautiful. And you don't have to be afraid. I'm not going to abandon you. You're not going to be lonely. And you're not going to be bored. You're not going to be grieving without hope. You'll grieve with hope. But we need to grieve. And if you are here and you don't know how to express your emotions, I think God wants to touch that. You just feel jammed up. You stuff your anger down. You stuff the crying down. You stuff, you know, hopefully you don't throw lamps across the room. Maybe, you know, but you stuff all this inner angst and frustration and it's always just pushed aside and ignored. I think God wants to touch that. And then I also think he wants to touch busy, busy, busy. Is there anyone left out there? (laughs) You're too busy for Jesus, and you know it, but you don't want to go there. Ask him why. Just ask him why. Would you do that right now? And then we'll begin to minister. Jesus, would you show us the places that we've been the place where we are right now and will you give us hope for where you're taking us hope for the adventure and the possibilities even in conversation with you would you stir that hope up in our hearts this morning hope that you will do a new thing in us and it will be beautiful and that we can trust you When you call us to come away with you, we can trust that it will not be bad or it won't be too hard or the mountain will be too big or the journey too long that you'll be there. And we don't have to be afraid. Give us courage, Jesus. Give us courage. Holy Spirit, comfort us. We feel like everything in us is jello and weak, and we're so human we can hardly stand it, and we just want to be done. Would you meet us there when we're so sick and tired? Come and speak to that, Jesus. Speak truth to our heart places where we've lied to ourselves and said I can't I can't cry I gotta be a big girl I gotta suck it up I gotta do what's right would you speak truth to that right now
for those who've lost someone so dear and so close, would you show them how good you are? If they've lost babies to miscarriages, would you show them what you're doing? How you're loving on that baby? And that there's still a future? Would you come? Go deep. Stir up that good soil in our hearts. Bring to life the seed of faith. Pour your water out on us. Flood us with your goodness, Jesus. Creative power, come and bring to life the things that have been dead. Resurrect our souls. Bring us freedom, Jesus. As you stand here in God's presence, some of you are going to have um, that same kind of experience that Janice had when Jesus took her in the boat. When Janice told me that story, I walked away and I said, Jesus, I want to go on a boat ride with you too. And so Jesus is going to come right now and begin to take you where he wants to take you and show you what he wants to show you. Your picture will be different, but it'll be personal. It is very healing. And it's okay to go with him. It's okay to go to those places with him because he's there with you. You want to go hang out by yourself there, but you have Jesus with you. Right? So just let him come and begin to do that. We're going to be quiet a little bit and let him show you what he wants to show you because it's a very healing, healing, healing time with him.
for the parts of those losses that you're still trying to hold on to, I feel like the Lord's saying, can I, can I have it? Yeah. Will you just let me have it? Would you let, let, let go of that hand or let go of that thing that you're just trying to re recreate or hold on to or attach something to? Just let him have it. You can trust him. calling you away to be with him. 